0: Everyone knows La Traviata. Everyone, I'm sure, who does, has wept for the noble self-sacrificing Violetta who gives up her lover, becomes destitute and dies of tuberculosis in the last act. Everyone has had the tunes run on and on in their heads as Alfred Noyes' rather sentimental Victorian poem The Barrel Organ reminds us, once learnt by school children everywhere, And there La Traviata sighs another sadder song, And there Il Trovatore cries a tale of deeper wrong. But when Verdi and his librettist Francesco Maria Piave were working on La Traviata in the early 1850s, they were creating something that was really dangerous. This was a modern dress opera about an upmarket prostitute that would pinpoint social hypocrisy uh, amongst men in particular and in their treatment of women and it was set in Paris and at a an monde that the composer himself knew, for Verdi uh, had lived long periods between 1847 and 1852 in Paris. This was of course a city that was then embracing a new artistic creed, realism, to show the world to itself and to people as it really was, this new industrial world. Think of impressionist painters delighting in the railway stations, the cafes, and the streets and the green parks of this modern 19th-century city. Alexandre Dumas' novel *La Dame aux Camélias* was based on his own relationship with a celebrated member of the demi-monde, enjoyed, of course, by men only. Uh, and it may be that Verdi saw the play that Dumas made out of his novel around February 1852. We can't be certain. But we do know that by October, he'd acquired a copy of the play and he decided he would make an opera out of it. It was intended for Venice, for the Fenice Theatre, where Rigoletto had had its premiere and where censorship was thought to be more relaxed than elsewhere in northern Italy. And of course the censorship is Austrian censorship because Venice is under the control of Austria at this period. Alas, modern-day courtesans were too strong a meat, even for Venice. So the first performance moved the story of Violetta Valérie and her love affair with Alfredo Germont to the beginning of the 18th century. Indeed, it wasn't until the 1880s that Germont, the father, was allowed to wear a 19th century top hat when he comes to visit Violetta to ask her to give up his son so that his daughter can make a good marriage. Violetta is of course dying of consumption, the curse, one of the curses of these new industrial cities and that must have made a great deal more sense in a 19th rather than an 18th century setting. The first performance of the opera was on 6th of March 1853 in Venice. It was jeered at, at times, by the audience who directed some of their scorn at the casting of the soprano Fanny Salvini Donatella in the lead role of Violetta. Though much admired as a singer, they thought that she was too old, at a mere 38, and she was, how shall I put it politely, a little plump to credibly play a young woman dying of consumption. (laughs) Nevertheless, the first act was met with applause, and there was cheering at the end too. But in the second act, the audience began to turn against the performance, especially after the singing of the baritone, Felice Varese, and the tenor, Lodovico Graziani. The day after that first performance, Verdi wrote to his friend Muzio and what has now become his most famous letter about this opera, La Traviata. last night was a failure. Was the fault mine, or the singers? Time will tell, and time of course has told. It has become the fifth most performed opera in the world, up there with La Boheme, Rigoletto, Carmen and the Magic Flute. After making some revisions between 1853 and the following May, mostly affecting Acts 2 and 3, La Traviata was presented again in Venice, this time at Teatro San Benedetto. The performance was a critical success, largely due to the soprano who took the role of Violetta. Well, tonight we've a trio of guests to explore Verdi's opera. Is it about a woman led astray or a woman victimised by a male-centred society? Anna Patalong is covering the role of Violetta in this new production and she'll be sharing her ideas about one of Verdi's most affecting heroines and one of his most demanding soprano roles. She's joined by Andy Smith, a member of the music staff here at English National Opera and they're going to perform an aria from the opera. We're also joined by Elaine Tyler Hall, a staff director here at English National Opera who's been working with Daniel Kramer on his new production of La Traviata. Our first guest is Flora Wilson, lecturer in music at King's College London. Will you please welcome Flora Wilson. (laughs) Flora, a very simple question, I think, to start with. What do you think appealed to Verdi when he saw Alexander Dumas play?
1: Hello everyone. Um, well, I think it was a cutting-edge subject, and he could see that. Um, so on the one hand, he was sort of personally interested in it as a topic. Um, he was personally interested for vaguely autobiographical reasons. Uh, just as as Christopher mentioned, um, that novel, which then became a play by Dumas, was based on Dumas' own love affair. And just as Dumas's love affair with Marie Duplessis was ending, in 1847 when Duplessis died of consumption, um, Verdi and his then partner, later wife Giuseppina Strepani, were just sort of getting together. They were, they were living together for the very first time. And Verdi attracted a lot of um, negative commentary from those around him, put it that way, um, in sort of small-town Italy at this time for making such a sort of radical move in his personal life. So these were issues he was aware of. Violetta, I should say, was by no means modelled on Streponi. That was That's unthinkable. Uh, he would not depict the woman he was in love with as a prostitute. That's just not that's not viable. Um, so that's, that's one half of what was appealing about this. On the other side, there is the fact that um, the Dumas play was a great success in Paris. It was enormously fashionable, it was very, very popular. And Verdi was, as well as being a fabulous man of the theatre, he had a business mind. He knew that you know, he needed a story that was going to actually speak to people, that was going to be appealing. And so this was, this was a good combination of possibilities. Do we know how he worked
0: with his librettist, Piave, as they began to shape this?
1: Well, uh, yes, we know all sorts about their their long working relationship. They first worked together in 1844. So they'd already been collaborating for nearly a decade. It was not by any means an equal partnership. Um, One of my older colleagues um, used the phrase dog-like devotion (laughs) to uh, describe Piave's relationship with Verdi. I mean, Verdi was in charge. And this was very much to our benefit, I would say. In Piave, Verdi found a librettist who he could shape. Basically, Verdi turned Piave from being a sort of fairly mediocre um, writer of plays, of texts, into the ideal collaborator for many of his most popular sort of early middle period works. So they were in constant touch. Piave would send texts over. Um, Verdi would say, okay, I like this bit. I don't like this bit at all. I need something that goes tumty ti tum tum instead or something more exciting. Piave would get back to him as quickly as possible. Piave was... Uh, an extraordinary enabler of Verdi's ideas about how the theatre should work. He was able to accommodate Verdi's desire to make changes, essentially. I think without Piave, we would not have the kinds of extraordinary career path that Verdi essentially created for himself, um, really changing what Italian opera sounded like.
0: Was it always intended, do you think, by the two men, that this should be set in a present 19th century tense? this was indeed as i said earlier to be a modern dress opera
1: absolutely i mean when verdi first came across the play when he was first sort of telling his friends there are many many letters that verdi wrote whenever he was telling his friends about this piece he was working on he said it's a subject for our times or it's a contemporary Mm. subject that was absolutely at the forefront and i mean There is no question that even once they nominally moved the date back to 1700 to sort of to deal with the the sensor, that that was normal practice, by the way. Often settings had to be shifted around during the 19th century. But even then, as you said already, Chris, I mean, the tuberculosis, for instance, makes so much more sense in a 19th century context, prostitution was an enormous issue, a big social sort of cause célèbre in some sense during the 19th century, particularly in Paris. Um, but really all over Europe, I mean, there was a sort of a social obsession with those two separate things, and they were also seen to coincide. They were phenomena of urban life in this sort of fast-changing, fast-paced society. But we
0: do need to make a distinction, don't we, between prostitution and where, where we're now sitting in the 19th century would have been only, what five minutes walk from the Strand mm-hmm. where it's said uh, that prostitutes used to line up up to five deep, all the way down to the end looking for their clients. We have to make a distinction between this kind of prostitution mm-hmm. and the kind of kept woman that Violetta and indeed Flora in the opera is. It's a different relationship, isn't it?
1: It is. I mean, there are, I think it's important, actually we, we could have been having this conversation during the 19th century there are actually books published during the mid-19th century about the different types of prostitutes. People were fascinated by this. There were maps created of where you could find different kinds of prostitutes in Paris, from the, the kind of lowliest student who just needed a bit of help so that she could eat, right the way through to the sort of Marie du Plessis famous, you know, nationally famous um, uh, women who were seen as sort of man-eaters, in some sense, that they could reduce previously rich men to nothing in days, and that this was part of what was going on here, that they weren't victims in any sense. They were very powerful and very, very dangerous. Um, And so, yes, there was definitely a continuum. Um, It was nonetheless recognized as a social problem, and this is within the context of societies in which women had very little legal agency. In Italy, at the time when La Traviata was was first performed, women couldn't own property unless they were married. Um, That that was just the legal, the state of affairs, legally speaking, um, in in various states of Italy, of course. Um, And so it was a really important issue, um, prostitution, whether it was a case of the courtesans who... Actually, could be very powerful in positive ways, and that they often played a really important role in business deals because they were the women who went between the powerful men. And so there are all sorts of interesting accounts of them brokering major deals to do with houseman's renovations in Paris. Um, that it's sort of the prostitutes of that kind of upper end um, could actually be very, very important to high society, to to the workings of government.
0: The prelude to this opera is anything but the traditional overture. And, and I wonder if it sense heralds Verdi trying to write a new kind of dramatic musical form?
1: I think so, yeah. I mean, by the time Verdi came to write La Traviata, which he wrote incredibly quickly, incidentally, it was under two months, Um, which is astonishingly fast. It's pretty much his his fastest production of an opera. Um, By the time he came to do that, he'd spent time in Paris, as you've already mentioned, and working in the French system. Um, He'd actually produced or he'd converted one of his Italian operas into a French opera, a grand opera called Jerusalem. And the French did things differently. They worked on a larger scale, particularly at the Paris Opera, the most prestigious house in the world at that time. And they worked on a very much larger scale, they had a bigger orchestra, they had a better rehearsed orchestra, they had more time, they had more money, everything was more spectacular. And so he'd had a taste of what that might be like and the kinds of um, different dramatic angle, the different dramatic approach that that sort of extra resourcing essentially could enable. And I think that was something he was really driving at here in La Traviata. So the prelude, the most interesting thing about that, is that it sort of runs the opera backwards. We hear themes that we're going to hear later in the opera, but we start at the end. So it's sort of sucking us in and pulling us through to deliver us back to the start. And then we're going to hear the whole thing play out in real time almost. Because what is really, really interesting about La Traviata as as an innovative opera is the way that for the very first time a composer is really trying to track the psychological development of a main character. And we hear it in the music. Violetta changes vocally through this opera. She starts off as the party girl. We hear it. It's all coloratura, all that ornamentation, the sort of excitable young woman. Um, By the end, by that sort of the final scene, her final aria in this opera, she's sort of matured, in terms of drama, but also musically. We hear she sings in a very different way. The pathos has come to the fore, um, and that's, that's sort of really important. That was what Verdi really brought to this piece and brought to opera through La Traviata. In a sense, the structure
0: of the traditional numbers, the aria, the duet, this changes too, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you've talked about the extraordinary aria for Violetta in Act One. One might think of the duet, for gemon père the father uh, and violetta it's quite different from any kind of duet between a baritone and a soprano we've heard in Italian opera it
1: is it absolutely is and that's where paris comes in as well because not only was the sort of the resourcing larger in paris the musical scale was bigger so with that duet in act 2 verdi was actually creating a sort of a musical unit on a whole new scale it's just bigger it's longer it keeps pulling, it's sort of tugging at the seams. It's hard to overstate how conventional, in the most literal sense of that word, Italian opera was in the first half of the 19th century, sort of before Verdi came along and really started pulling the forms apart. It was an opera. There was a reason why operas could be written quickly, and it's because they they were cut on a very familiar pattern. Composers before Verdi, of course, did make really sort of fabulous changes to those patterns gradually over time. Um, But it wasn't really until Verdi that you actually get a wholesale renovation and in some cases sort of dismantling of that, that cutting model um, that was being used to create an aria um, in two movements. Um, Verdi eventually waged a war on the thing called the cabaletta, which is the fast second movement of an aria. And by the end of his career, he's saying, I am not writing any more cabalettas. The days <laughs> for those is over. We don't need someone hanging around on stage doing ornamented singing. We need them to get off. The drama needs to lead here.
0: Do you think that that the we and the audience of the 19th century would have been shocked by Germain's request to Violetta? He comes in Act Two and in the duet, he says, look, I have a daughter as well as a son. I'm very sorry to tell you she can't get married to the man she really wants to marry and ought to marry socially. Uh, as long as her brother is having an affair with you, will you please give up? I mean, was this as shocking then as it is now?
1: I think it probably wasn't. Um, I think that was a sort of a real... Um, Social. it was a social reality, which is, I think, another one of the things that Verdi would have been attracted to about this piece, that it was realist in some sense, it was dealing with reality at a time when that was beginning to become an important feature of the arts more generally. Um, No, I fear that was not a shocking request to make. Um, I think... I mean, I think even today, we're sort of very lucky to live in a society where that does seem to be a shocking request, but I think we'd be foolish if we imagined that that's the case everywhere um, and sort of for all time. How how do you
0: explain the extraordinary appeal of this opera? As I've said, it's it's one of the five most performed operas in the canon and, and, you know, here we have a huge audience this evening who are going to see it. You know, what is it about this extraordinary story that catches people?
1: Well, I mean, I was going to say the non-musicologist within me, because there's a small part of me that isn't the opera scholar, (laughs) just goes, the tunes, the tunes, (laughs) great music. Um, But I think there are, I mean, that's, I think, part of it. Um, But I think the more sort of sensible answer is that this is an opera about modern life, and there's something about the paciness of it. I mean, for any of you who've already seen it, and for any of you who luckily, I mean, lucky you if you're about to see it for the first time, this is a fast-moving opera. You get sucked in, it chucks you out at the other end, and you feel as though You've been through a sort of emotional tumble dryer. Um, it really is an opera that's about what it's like to be a, sort of alive in modernity, to experience emotion in a very sort of visceral way. Um, and I think, you know, one way of, of listening out for that, in some sense, is that this is an opera absolutely pervaded by waltzes, even at the most unlikely moments. Um, if you feel like it, you sort of tune, tune your hearing slightly differently and realise that actually you're listening to a very slow waltz, even though it's sort of tragic. This is pervaded by the sound of sort of 19th century Paris. But I think there's something about the issues in this opera, the kind of emotional truth that Verdi was trying to get at, that, again, that sense of psychological development that I mentioned earlier, that still makes sense to us. We get it, we, uh, we, it speaks to us, this idea of human sacrifice, of emotional sacrifice. Um, and of what it means to love and to live and to die, Um, these things, they're not going to stop mattering to us.
0: Flora Wilson, thank you very much indeed, as always. Thank you for having me. Now, yes, indeed, (laughs) absolutely, absolutely.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: I might add, ladies and gentlemen, that you can see on the screen to my left, you can see images from the production that you're going to see. But now, music. We're joined now by Anna Patalong, who's covering the role of Violetta Valerie in La Traviata, and Andy Smith, a member of English National Opera's music staff. Will you welcome Andy Smith and Anna Patalong?
2: Good evening. Uh, I'm going to sing Violetta's Act 3 aria, uh, where she's... Facing death, and she believes that Alfredo is not coming back to
3: rescue her. I've waited and waited, but I'll never see.
0: Anna and uh, Andy, thank you both very much indeed. Um, Anna, um, why do you think Violetta lets herself fall in love with Alfredo? Um,
2: I think from the very beginning, uh, we see that Violetta is she knows that she's facing death, and I think there's this sort of existential question that hangs over her throughout the whole opera, um, and she she wants to know that she's lived a good life, even though that, you know, she's a courtesan, obviously. Um, she she often wonders mm. if she'll be remembered and how she'll be remembered. Um, and I think when Alfredo comes in, she sees a certain innocence and purity in him mm. that reminds her of perhaps herself when she was younger, or perhaps, you know, that that she does actually have a, 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 a purity inside herself, mm. um, that she is a good person. And, um, i think she sort of allows herself to fall in love with him so that it it proves to herself that 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 is actually how she will be remembered too
0: is she do you think a victim or does she have a kind of sturdy independence that comes with this role as part of the demimonde
2: i i think violetta is actually a very strong independent character i think um she is a victim of her circumstance and a victim of the time that she's in. Um, She, in a way, is sort of uh, quite ahead of her time. She doesn't want to be... uh, controlled by a man in the sense of she wants to have independence independence um, monetary uh, financial independence um she says you know she would she would prefer to sort of sell all her possessions rather than kind of be supported by a man so in that sense um you know prototype feminist but um,
3: <laughs> <laughs> she, yeah,
2: she is a victim of of the time and, and circumstance definitely
0: how dra- demanding is the role, dramatically? I mean, you're you're on stage virtually the whole time, aren't you?
2: Yeah, I th- and uh, to sort of keep that focus is 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 always uh, difficult in a way. Um, I think the interesting thing about Violetta is because she's a courtesan, she's she's constantly acting. She's an actress mm-hmm. by trade, really. Um, so conveying that to an audience is is often quite difficult because you have to make changes. In a split second, so you are, you're. She's she's putting on her public face, and then you're seeing her deeper hidden thoughts. And it's often quite difficult to do that um, in a in a short space of time, and also make it defined enough that it's it's clear to an audience that this is this is her public face, and this is the private thoughts. But also maintain um, uh, their re- reality, uh, not not make them too. Um,
0: do <laughs> Fl- Flora talked about how what interests Verdi now is the kind of psychology of these characters. What he's exploring with the music, as well as the text, is, is who these people are, how they work, how they move. Does the music help you as, as you're making this exploration into this woman?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it goes back to something Flora was saying as well about the, the, the music does change throughout you know at the beginning we see um a very sort of effervescent character i think that is very much her public face um when the crowd disappears it's it's ever slightly different music that, that comes in um but the music yeah it does it, it revolves throughout the opera you've got three acts and three acts are actually very clearly defined um the you've got the the bright coloratura in, in the first act when she's playing up to her public and then you've got the real um uh, the choice in Act Two. Mm. So you really see her struggle with not only uh, gemon but also herself as well. Um, she doesn't know what to write to Alfredo. Um, you see the, I mean, uh, the beautiful s- uh, oboe solo. Is it? Yeah, <laughs> oboe solo. <laughs> um, uh, that yeah, that's that's really kind of uh, her thoughts sort of coming to the fore. Mm.
0: And 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 how. Demanding vocally is it? I mean, you've just described really three different sopranos. There's a coloratura yeah. soprano in Act One, there's a <laughs> lyric soprano in Act Two, and there is something extraordinarily new in Act Three, as we've just heard, as you sang that that final aria. Yeah, it's
2: it's very difficult, and it, um, it it's very difficult to prepare for in a way because you have all the fireworks at the beginning, and you really need to make sure that you you. you Conserve your energy; that you can actually um, get through this sort of uh, emotion of, of Act Two and Three. People often say that you know they they can either describe themselves as a, as an Act One Violetta or an Act Three Violetta. <laughs> um, I quite like Act Two actually. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> Anna, thank you very much thank indeed. You. Uh, thanks for talking and for singing. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) our our final guest this evening is Elaine Tyler-Hall, who's a staff director here at English National Opera, and she's been working very closely with Daniel Kramer on this new production of La Traviata. Elaine (laughs) Tyler-Hall. Did this new production choose you, Elaine, or did you choose it?
4: Um, Well, I'm full-time here at Eno, so this is my home, I work here all the time. Um, So... It partly chose me, uh, but I work with Daniel quite often. I've worked with him actually for 10 years, off and on when he's been doing his operas. So I really enjoy working alongside him. He's a really inspirational character um, and uh, the the energy and the fun that we have in the studio is extraordinary, so I love working with him.
0: Can you remember what he said at the very beginning of this project about how he saw this story?
4: He, he. I mean, I think what Flora was saying about Verdi writing this piece as a contemporary piece, um, looking at uh, his society in the mid nineteenth century, and I think Daniel feels very strongly that that theatre, as well as being an entertainment should also, to a degree, reflect the society that we're living in now. So although the piece is, uh, you know, 100 and whatever, 50, 60 years old now, um, there should be something happening on the stage which which fascinates us. You know, as 20, 21st century people, we should look at the issues on the stage and, and be, you know, be, look at ourselves and see what it tells us about ourselves. Um, so... Daniel was very interested in, and is very interested in, this modern thing at the moment about women, women in society, um, how they are exploited, um, whether they really do have equality, um, and I think this piece does really make us question a woman's society, um, a woman within society.
0: Where are we in this production? I mean, we know that it's supposed to be Paris and then outside Paris and then Paris. Is that where we
4: are? I I think that uh, what Daniel's fantastically good at doing in his productions is looking at um, sort of imagery. So he's not particularly interested in saying, right, we're gonna set it in 1920 or 1940 or 18, whatever. He's not interested in that. He's interested in, in finding the images which really support the story and, and uh, explain his ideas behind the piece. So we have lots of different images in this, um, and we're not saying everything is uh, Weimar Republic, um, 1920s, 30s, that sort of feel, it's, but we have elements of it. So Violetta's party at the beginning, we have an extraordinary set, which I won't describe to you too much because I don't want to give the game away. But, but the, um, it's a naughty party. It's a really naughty party. <laughs> uh, and uh, so we see in that sort of cabaret-like images um, on stage. Uh, we're seeing men dressed in almost 19th century naughty underwear, uh, corsets and socks and garters. And, it's, and we see the women in beautiful, elegant, but also quite naughty um, underwear. Um, so that's this world, this sort of naughty world that we live in. Uh, and so we have this, you know, we're, he's just looking at these little images of, of 19th century men controlling, exploiting men. We're looking at the naughtiness of the 1930s. And then we move into Act Two with the, the beauty of the Violetta's idyllic uh, place of safety. And so we have a, a very different look in act two of, of um, the natural world. Again, I don't want to give, it, give the game away and, and sort of describe the set. Uh, you'll see it. And it's, but it's the contrast that we get between the first act and this kind of complete change when we get into act two. And then end of act two, again, it's another change. And in act three, again, we go to this new place, which is not necessarily a description of realism, but it should inspire in everybody sort of the imagination and make your imagination work very hard. So I hope that you enjoy that side of this
0: production. It is fair to say there's a kind of journey through the design without giving anything away, uh, that, that by the end things have changed, a story has been told in this production, very as, so. as you'd expect with Kramer's mm. work. <laughs> Indeed. Um, the, the, my impression, um, having seen a dress rehearsal only so far, was just how wonderfully young Violetta and Alfredo are, yes. and, and, and this makes it a very poignant story in a way. But that was intended, presumably. Very,
4: very much so. I think, uh, particularly for Alfredo, uh, it, which is a, a tricky character in some ways within within this piece. For, for to know why Violetta falls in love with him. Um, And as Anna was saying, you know, that that we we need Alfredo to be a young, innocent man who inspires her but isn't part of this... um, exploitative world, uh, who will treat her like an equal and who will love her for who she is, that she doesn't have to pretend to be someone else. So, you know, the youth is wonderful because you get the naivety and the freshness and the almost childlike qualities within both of these lovers so that they're not over-experienced, um, cynical people, but they still have the opportunity to, to really
0: be innocently in love. Also, there's a sense in which somehow the men have never grown up. They're kind of perpetual rather smutty-minded teenagers. <laughs> Whereas the women have a sophistication and a maturity and they know how to run things.
4: Well, what can I say? Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that, that again is something that we don't expect to happen in this opera. Normally it's the other way around. It's the women who are kind of flighty, flirty uh, and racing around and it's the men who know exactly how many beans make three.
4: Absolutely. And what's wonderful in Act 2, I think, is that Germain, who uh, comes in to the scene expecting to find Violetta as a very specific person, you know, she is the prostitute, the the woman that he should disdain, Um, but we see his journey and we see this man who who should be incredibly powerful having doubts about himself and and actually losing a sense of power in the face of a woman who will stand up for herself and act with real moral courage
0: as the, as the production was working its way through the rehearsal room in the studios so, were there a great many changes or was there a clear idea of, of where you were going and you just went there
4: it was a very, very clear idea. Um, this is a joint production with Basel, um, and in fact Basel did the production first before us, but only just. The set arrived a week before we opened, so it was kind of, yes, very <laughs> just before. Um, so it, it, it was a, a revival, sort of, um, but uh, Daniel's ideas are very clear, and I've worked with him on many things, and he, his choices are, are made before we get into the rehearsal studio. Of course, when you have the singers and the performers in front of you, things will change because of their skills and their, you know, their personalities and the way that they work. But the, the overall um, l- big ideas, he keeps very strongly to, he sticks to them really strongly.
0: You whet the appetite wonderfully, Elaine. Thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, we've reached the end of our Loretta time. Can I say some thank yous? Thank you to all of you uh, for being here with us. And I hope that you have a terrific evening in with theatre. But above all, thank you to three people, four people with Andy, who've been our guests to explain this extraordinary piece to us. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>